Welcome to the Sustainability and You podcast, a series of interviews focusing on facts shared by passionate advocates who are part of the movement towards net zero. I'm Josephine Bush, and I'm the founder of the Sustainability and You platform. And I'm Tilly Wickens, the leader of our Young Ambassadors Council. In this podcast series, our aim is to raise awareness, encourage collaboration, and join the dots between disciplines that will influence policy and decision-making as we move to net zero. We are aiming to bridge the gap between silos and generations, strengthening the lines of communication with a small, influential community of people who care and are passionate about how we create change. guest on the Sustainability and You podcast is Emma Howard Boyd, CBE. Emma has been the chair of the Environment Agency since 2016. She's also an ex officio board member of the Department for Environment, Food and Rural Affairs and an advisor to the Board of Trade. Emma, with a background in finance, is a board member or advisor to many organisations, which include the Prince's Accounting for Sustainability Project, the Green Finance Institute, the Coalition for Climate Resilient Investment, the Centre for Greening Finance and Investment, and the Council for Sustainable Business, amongst many others. Never has there been a more opportune time to discuss adaption finance, which is the subject of this podcast. Whilst this podcast was recorded before Storm Eunice and Franklin, but after Arwen, you can see that we are facing real time the realities of climate change. The climate scientists have evidenced that we have reached certain tipping points and are currently not on track to achieve a 1.5 degree world. This means we have to adapt as well as mitigate. This places significant emphasis on the role of adaption finance, much of which Emma has been a huge advocate for. It has never been more clear that the need to rebalance our approach to climate change and incentivize the allocation of capital to adaption is here and now and very much needed. Emma makes the case eloquently and articulately against the backdrop of these real life events. So welcome, Emma, to the Sustainability and New podcast. Tilly and I are so excited to have this time with you today. We've been really looking forward to this interview. So welcome. Thank you for inviting me to join you. We always like to start these podcasts by asking our guests about their career trajectory to date uh, and current role, and in particular, what drives you. So could we start with that? I'd love to. So currently, my main role is as chair of the Environment Agency in England uh, with a regulator, the environmental regulator. And we also have responsibility for delivering flood and coastal erosion risk management in the country. So 
quite a big remit in that role. I have a background in finance and have spent most of my career working in, I suppose, the early days, the pioneering of, of green finance. So amongst my portfolio, this the chairing the Environment Agency as a non-executive role, I have a range of different board and advisory roles. And I think the main three theme that runs through all of them is finance, sustainability, climate change, and increasingly a strong focus on delivery. That's so relevant to the work that we do at the Environment Agency, where we are out on the ground, in the field, delivering real projects alongside our regulatory work. And I think that makes a fantastic connection between the somewhat more ethereal world of finance that I've spent the majority of my career in and linking it to the real world and the real actions that we need to see take place on the environmental and climate change agenda. So uh, I should mention roles such as I'm interim chair of the Green Finance Institute. I'm a co-chair of the Coalition for Climate Resilient Investment. I'm on the board of Accounting for Sustainability, an asset management group called Lion Trust. My portfolio is evolving at the moment as I glide towards the final few months as chair of the Environment Agency. But I think in those roles, you can see where my career has started and headed to and the themes of my career. I mean, Emma, your career and what you have done, I think, is so hugely not just impressive, but actually inspiring as a woman myself who's been in the green sector. I'm, I'm, I'm interested in what drives you as well and what has sustained your interest in this sector over the years? And that's such a great question because I have seen colleagues, particularly from my early days in green finance, move on, disappear out of the sector. Because I think what's clear to us all, despite the progress that we are making and despite the progress on the environmental agenda, green finance agenda that we've been seeing in recent years. Throughout my career, it's gone from being a slightly quirky thing to be doing, very much pioneering, uh, very much starting this in the early days of green finance, to mainstreaming. And I think this has required a huge amount of personal resilience keeping on track and working on this agenda. And I think what drives me is the urgency, and that has become so clear in recent years, particularly since the various reports that have been published by the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which have highlighted how essential action in this decade is. And and I think it comes back to that need to see action and delivery, just recognising that there is no time for despondency or becoming distracted or disillusioned about the progress that has been made, needs so desperately to be made that you just have to keep on 
working on this incredibly important agenda. And I think a lot of the resilience comes from the fantastic relationships you build with colleagues working on this sector, on this issue, the, from the private sector, the public sector, the third sector. And again, I think I, uh, through my portfolio, you can also see representation of how I've worked in, and continue to work in each of those sectors. Hmm. I think I think it's no surprise that um, personal resilience makes for great leadership uh, in this space, as you've shown. You were very present and and very uh, a hugely great advocate for climate resilience and, and adaption at COP twenty six. But before we get into any of the detail of of that, it'd be great to take a step back now that there's been a little distance between. Um, November when COP26 happened and and today, just to share your reflections on what you think it it achieved. It is so important to see the different COPs, not in isolation, but in the overall progress that is being made. And there is no doubt that progress was made in Glasgow. Certainly where my focus has been very much on the climate resilience and nature agenda to see those aspects of climate change, the climate emergency featured on every single day, right from the get-go, right from those early days where the world leaders were present, is a game-changer. But it's also key that we reflect on the scale of the challenge that we still face. So important to celebrate what has been achieved, but also important to recognise that there is so much more that needs to be done. And so, again, most of my colleagues from across government, across finance, across the nature delivery agenda are already leaning into what needs to happen at COP27 and indeed COP28, both um, events due to take place, one in Africa, one in the Middle East, and in areas of the world where climate adaptation, the physical shocks, climate shocks that are already being experienced are absolutely front and centre, maybe very differently from some of the issues that we're dealing with here in the UK, where certainly on the top of my agenda is flooding water, water resources, uh, water quality. But in parts of Africa where those issues are absolutely there, it's also global heating alongside the weather events that are being experienced. So it's very clear to me that Progress is being made. Urgency is still there. We need to shift to real action. But also, given the location of the next two COPs, we're going to see climate resilience and climate adaptation alongside the importance of nature's recovery ever going ever more up the agenda. And how well do you feel the the, the challenges and, and opportunities of climate adaption and resilience are understood and the associated risks versus climate mitigation. There's a huge amount of focus on capital flows into mitigation opportunities and new technologies and development and projects. How well understood do you think the the adaption challenges and opportunities are? The attention 
of recent years has very much been on net zero mitigation, reducing emissions. And I think the the focus of adaptation, there's no doubt that the drumbeat has been growing. And you can see that not just from the work of, of my colleagues at the Environment Agency, the doubling of our flood budget um, given by central government for the Environment Agency to deliver alongside DEFRA, but you can see it in the private sector response, the initiatives like the Coalition for Climate Resilient Investment. But it's also clear in the many different conversations that I have, both nationally, locally, and globally, that unless you have a champion for climate resilience in the room, around the table, the agenda very often gets dominated by all of the work that needs to be done to reduce emissions. One of the key messages that I like to deliver is if we're investing in energy efficiency, in renewables, in net zero infrastructure, we could end up with stranded assets if we're not preparing for the climate shocks that we are seeing ever more regularly and all around the world. And so you could be building energy efficient housing, renewables that literally wash away in a flood or melt in a heat wave. And if we go back briefly to COP26, the days approaching COP26, we had significant flood warnings both here in England, but also in Scotland. We saw severe disruption to many people's journeys. The um, the data we have at the Environment Agency is that for every household that is flooded, 16 other people are affected by the infrastructure services that they use. I, I'm questioning that data now because I think the many, many people who had their journeys disrupted as they went to Glasgow across the country, either by road or rail. And then midway through COP26, uh, ironically, on the eve of um, Adaptation and Resilience Day, the Thames barrier, the Hull barrier, the Boston barrier closed on one of the high tides, quietly protecting literally millions of people and infrastructure, homes, properties from that high tide. And that's exactly the sort of uh, event that we're going to see more of in this country and around the world. So ever more tension put on to climate change. I think we're on the cusp of more and more investors, infrastructure providers, really understanding the importance of climate resilience. But we also need to understand that climate re resilience in the context of the systems in which that infrastructure sits, as opposed to just making that infrastructure, that home resilient to climate change. Because again, you could get flooding, you could have a shopping centre that is resilient to flooding. But if all of the roads and rail floods, then you're uh, for weeks in a in certain scenarios, you may, may find that the footfall at that shopping centre 
is massively reduced. We need to start thinking about these interrelated shocks. So you've got this sort of failure chain, haven't you? These sort of interdependencies between the event itself and the further consequences of that climate hazard. The systemic. Yeah, you know, within within the, the the locality of where where that event happens. I mean, it strikes me there's this delicate dance between mitigation and 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 um, adaption um, focus that it's easier to grasp the investable opportunity, I suppose, within mitigation, um, the field of mitigation uh, at the moment, and adaption seen as a cost. Uh, but not a an opportunity that in financial terms would deliver a return. How do we shift the thinking in attracting capital and finance and innovative financial products into that space? And this is where it gets quite complicated because, firstly, we know that the world of finance is quite complicated and there are many, many different types of financial solutions and products and the sort of financial and practical interventions will suit different types of financial products. So you could be looking at this through the investment lens, through the insurance lens, uh, again, whether you're looking at a particular asset and making that resilient to climate shocks or whether you're looking at a systemic approach, how does your road rail infrastructure work with increasing flood risk and the the knock-on consequences of landslips, et cetera, et cetera. So I do think the messaging around this gets quite complicated because you have to get down to very specific problems But if I give some examples of where the thinking and the action is focused, we've been working with, for example, Flood Re in the insurance industry to look at property resilient measures. So the sorts of interventions that get made at a household level, particularly for homes that are getting frequently flooded, And if you invest in these build back better measures, people who are sadly flooded at a household level on a frequent basis will move, be able to move back into their homes more quickly. Their homes will dry out because the insurance, uh, if they are indeed able to get insurance, uh, allows them to build back better. Whereas in the past, it has been building back to the previous standards. So it's acknowledging that that climate risk exists. And actually, it's in an insurable model. It's in everybody's interest to make sure that whether it's the electrics put above a certain level, the materials used, which will dry out more quickly, will then allow all of the knock-on uh, costs associated with having to be um, to, to live away from a home as it's being repaired to be reduced. And within that lie financial benefits. It is so key with larger infrastructure projects that we are designing in resilience 
from the get-go. And this is where it becomes more affordable, but it requires a different way of analysing those costs because it may mean that it's slightly more expensive up front. The same exists for if you're using net zero concrete, but it's the right thing to do for the long term. And with the right sort of financial models, you can start factoring these things in. And uh, I think it's recognising timescales. It's recognising that over the life of infrastructure, the built environment, the risks that you will face. So again, um, capturing the those additional costs right up front in the design, it will become much more affordable and value for money over the life of that particular asset. And these are the sorts of things where we need the civil engineers working alongside the finance people, working alongside the delivery bodies mm. to factor in and, and make, make affordable and make sense from an investment perspective. And that's the opportunity, sir, isn't it? But coming back to the point you made, actually, really interestingly, around um, the work you were doing with Fladray and and what is that concept of what is insurable, it strikes me that insurance premiums are a great market signal, actually, as to whether we've got the balance right between mitigation and adaption, because to the extent that you're having to deal with the consequences of climate change, the and, and it's an insurable risk you know, the insurance sector steps in. But to the extent that we get that wrong and we haven't got the balance right between the two, we we may get to a point where things become uninsurable or risk premiums become so high that it's very difficult for certain communities to, to insure themselves. Do you think we're at certain pivot points around that with some of the data now that we have access to uh, around flood risk, coastal erosion, uh, and other the impacts of other climate hazards, that the, the insurance sector is moving away from certain sectors of our communities and therefore they're exposed? I think it depends, again, where you are in the world. And if we were having this conversation more broadly, for to include developing countries, small island states, which are at the absolute forefront of the climate emergency. If you take Fiji in Cyclone Winston in 2016, that wiped off 35, 37% of GDP over the course of two days. And where we're thinking about climate resilience and building back better sits absolutely at the heart of their Ministry of Finance, because it is so core to the future resilience of that country. Where we are in the UK, through the work that we're doing with our flood programme, through the work that we're doing with the insurance industry, is in the majority of cases, building in that resilience to flooding through our flood program, through a range of different interventions. There's government funding, there is partnership funding, there is the potential for more to be invested from um, the balance sheets of the insurance companies. In our flood strategy that we published um, 18 months, two years ago, we also set out that 
over the course of time, we whilst we want to build back better, we may get to the point where building back better also means building back to better places. And there are communities in this country where my environment agency colleagues with local government are having conversations mm. about the, the, the future of those communities. Mm. But those decisions will take time. They will be worked on with those communities and will be political decisions eventually because it will become very important to make decisions over resources and where to allocate those resources over time to protect and build resilience. One of the one of the saddest things I have to do when I'm going to open a flat flood scheme where we've worked with the community often over many years to build in that greater resilience to put in some hard schemes, some concrete schemes to put in some property level measures, some nature-based solutions, which will slow the flow, is to constantly remind those communities that they still are living with flood risk. We cannot guarantee that they will be protected from future floods. We can say to them that they are uh, there is a higher level of resilience, but I have to give that message that you, whilst you can sleep better, uh, you still need to be plugged into all of our warning and informing. And those are the measures that wherever you are, whether you're in the UK or in other parts of the world, we need to make sure that we're investing in the full suite of measures because everything I'm hearing from the scientists is that the events that we're experiencing around the world are at the edges of what they were expecting in the modelling. So we have to be ready for uh, some big events mm. and all of the interventions that will uh, ultimately make sure that we're protecting lives and livelihoods. When we published our adaptation report uh, back in, it was a couple of weeks before for COP, so in October last year, this is something that a range of different organisations in the UK have to do periodically as set out in the Climate Change Act. We just had a board meeting uh, at the Environment Agency and we looked at what would have happened if the weather system that we saw in Europe last summer had hit the UK and such was our analysis that um, with one in five households in England at risk of flooding with something like 60% of people not realising that they are living at flood risk we decided that it was important to issue a start warning that it is adapt or die we do need to start preparing for climate shocks. And very sadly, wherever you look around the world, lives are being lost. It was 200 people in Europe. I think over a thousand people died of heat stress in Vancouver last year. This is, this is serious stuff. But if we invest for the long term, we can also 
building the sorts of resilience that will mean that we are protecting lives and livelihoods. I'd much rather that we are planning to adapt and ultimately thrive as um, individuals and economies. And that's where we still have a considerable time and opportunity to build in that resilience to make sure that we're ready for climate shocks. You must find that communication piece, I mean, impossible on an emotional level, of course, um, because it's not an easy message to deliver, but is also on a kind of practical level, like, for example, during the pandemic, which obviously is ongoing, but um, with the vaccination process, for example, there were lots of communities, lots of examples of communities who weren't getting the message of the severity of the situation, of the fact that they needed a vaccination in order to kind of progress to the next stage, which hopefully was leading towards stepping outside of the pandemic and pushing it behind us. And I wonder if, and a lot of that was to do with lack of access to media and also sort of internal kind of echo chamber systems as well, I guess, in in communities based on cultural or religious um, backdrops. I wonder if you have the same problem with the with the climate crisis with communities who are from a kind of uh, potentially quote unquote um, developing community, even within somewhere like the UK, presumably affluent part of the world. Is is that is that difficult? How do you hammer that message home and sort of deal with that? It's very challenging, and we need to look at every single route of communication and constantly trying to get that balance right between the urgency and the the hope that is there uh, and getting stories of some of the fantastic practical actions that are making a difference at a community level is really important to strive to do when you are often battling against all the negative stories that are are out there. I'm going to be doing a walk next week on Dartmoor where working with farmers, working with the local community, we have put in lots of small interventions into the landscape to slow the flow of water and help build that resilience to flooding in that part of of Devon. And it's wonderful to go out onto the moors to see the interventions, to see that in this instance, it absolutely makes sense to use natural methods of slowing down water and telling that story. And I think that's where I get uh, a huge uh, boost to my optimism when I'm out on the ground, in the fields, seeing real measures that are making a difference. And that's why it's been a huge privilege to me uh, to be chairing the Environment Agency, to see these positive steps that are being taken mostly in partnership. And and that that is so important to the leadership that we need to see, that this is about public sector, private sector, local environmental groups, local communities coming together to make sometimes small interventions that can make a massive difference to uh, how we think about the environment and improve the environment and prepare ourselves for some of these shocks that are coming down the line. Net zero and our work on mitigation is vital. We have to do 
as much as we can to reduce emissions. That's why we at the Environment Agency made a net zero commitment. uh, We want to achieve net zero by 2030 in the way that we work and in the projects that we deliver. But we know that we have to work in conjunction with all of our partners to achieve that. So we spend time working with other infrastructure delivery bodies across government and with our civil engineers. But we also know that taking communities with us and general public citizens have really begun to understand the environment and the role of nature. That brings greater scrutiny, but it also brings greater opportunity to really build on that momentum and really start delivering on all of the actions that need to take place. How do you deal with the trade-offs, Emma, that if if there's an immediate need for adaption because there's an immediate climate event that needs to be tackled, but it it, it is not an environmentally friendly solution because that's all that's available to us at the moment, this sort of trade-off and and balance of getting it right and prioritisation of how decisions are made and um, capital allocated. How do you deal with that? Because that in itself must be quite a delicate decision-making process. It is. It's important to work with communities so that they are engaged in the sort of interventions that you make. Sometimes it will literally be putting in temporary defences because we're in the middle of an uh, an incident and that is the best way to protect a community. But in terms of the longer term plans, they often do take a number of years to get the community buy-in to make sure it is acceptable to the local community to get the planning permissions and permits which is why you also, alongside the actual projects, need to be focusing on the warning and informing, the communication. It's been really helpful working with the Met Office. We have a joint venture with the Met Office looking at Flood Forecasting Centre, but also with the naming of storms, that brings greater public awareness of an impending storm and impending flood damage. There's a similar initiative at the moment to name heat waves because of the focus that is being brought by the media to naming an event, naming a climate event. It's it's a constant, it's a constant balance. And sometimes in order to do better, you have to do some environmental harm. The most important thing to to do is communicate that, communicate why you are doing that and work with the local groups and environmental groups who often are the best deliverer of those messages because ultimately the damage will be infinitely greater if we don't put in the, if we're talking about flood measures in place that will protect that landscape and those communities. The percentage of private capital that is allocated to adaption resilience, you know, is far um, less than with, with mitigation. How do you think that we we change that? What what, what needs to happen to, to, to have greater allocation of private wealth to or private capital to to this part of the sector? 
I think it's partly the understanding of the importance of climate resilience. I also think it's about not segregating into adaptation versus mitigation versus nature's recovery. All of this is integral and there may be one instance where the net zero benefits are far more obvious, but actually joining up the dots and making sure that it's uh, really important that you're considering climate resilience cannot be put in a separate box. There is an extraordinary photo that I show of a Tesla charging station underwater because it was put into a flood plain. And, and it's that, it's kind of obvious when you see it, but it's making sure that in those investments around net zero, that you are thinking of the, the, the long term and is this a suitable way of building the thing that it is that you're building. Yeah, we hope we do have a tendency to label, don't we, which is sometimes not sort of helpful to your point on sort of segregating the I guess the the, the mitigation, adaptation, and uh, and resilience. You know, with the climate bond initiative, there's you know the labelling of debt, for instance, has has sought to segregate, but that may mean that capital is not directed towards adaptation and 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 resilience initiatives. And I suppose that concerns me, given the the absolute need to ensure that. We do have capital moving into, you know, adaptive and resilience opportunities. But if we focus on opportunities, it'd be good to get an example from you of where you're seeing innovation on a more positive note and investment in R&D and technologies that really help uh, with our approach to adaption and resilience. If, if I look at the overall allocation to infrastructure investment in the UK, The Infrastructure Projects Authority has set out that uh, over this decade, there'll be something like £650 billion worth of investment in new infrastructure. If you compare that to the flood budget uh, and you look at any pie chart or bar chart, but the flood budget from um, DEFRA and the Environment Agency is a thin green line of defence. Where we need to get to in terms of adaptation is that where relevant, all of that new investment is being seen through the lens of climate resilience and nature's recovery. And the innovation comes through working with uh, civil engineers, working at the forefront of different technologies, sometimes going back to the basics of nature's interventions and and understanding that. I think using data, machine learning from data can really help with some of the interventions that we need to see and focus as much on maintenance as well as new infrastructure build. And so some great technology uh, using drones, for example, Mm -hmm. to expect our assets. Mm -hmm. A lot of infrastructure in the UK is Victorian and needs constant maintenance. But by using technology, geospatial data, drone footage efficiently, you can 
not only efficiently repair things after a flood and boy are our assets getting constant battering from the weather but uh, then you can target the resources in the most efficient way and and again often by looking at net zero alongside climate resilience alongside nature you can get multiple benefits as well and capturing those will also help with understanding the importance of investing in resilience. One of the flood defences that we built recently uh, in uh, near Liven St Saint- Anne's shows that the, the defences at the coast are also being used for fantastic social benefits. So cycling, walking along the flood defences built in a way that they are built much more into the the landscape and rather rather than a, a very very stark concrete wall that we can see sometimes at our coastline were built in the 50s and, and 60s and just down the road from where we are at the moment where we have work in Avonmouth where it's a flood scheme but also using nature, interventions so where we can store water that will become a nature reserve we're combining both old thinking with new thinking and will protect literally thousands of properties and the value of um, businesses behind those those walls they, the properties still need to be thought of through the lens of resilience because as i've said earlier we can't protect for everything but by putting those schemes in place you're also bringing economic prosperity for the future and that's the sort of way we need to think about climate resilience not just the cost but what it unlocks for those communities. It's interesting what you're saying about the whole kind of design piece, actually, because I remember when we first had like windmills on on landscapes, you know, for for wind energy, and people were like, there was such a kind of um, polarization of of perspective, and some people hated them and were like, it's an eyesore, I don't want that, you know, and some people actually think they're really beautiful. I personally think they're quite peaceful to look at. (laughs) But it's interesting what you're saying about these kind of, Big. Well, I didn't really think about it, I guess. Um, and there must be a lot of pushback from local communities of sort of the disruption of the visual in the com- in the community and in the sort of landscape. And you're having to adapt to, to sort of suit, suit everyone's aesthetics as well. We have some fantastic glass panelling that is used along the River Severn in various communities because the community did not want to lose that connection with the water. But they wanted to be protected as well. So that's innovation where strong reinforced but see-through glass is being used. Again, there's the most wonderful scheme that I have visited throughout its construction, but also shortly after it's been used in anger. So in Salford, where there's a flood alleviation scheme that is right in the heart of the city when when you're in it and and amongst it because it's mostly there as a fantastic park but there's part of the park now that uh, will store water after a rainfall event uh, and prevent flooding in the community 
But that area of Salford, the the number of local people visiting it throughout the pandemic, the the fact that it's public amenity, so beautiful uh, because there's always a bit of water there, uh, but cycle rides, fantastic, uh, where it used to be derelict land. Uh, the 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 men, multiple impacts of changing the landscape, working with the landscape to also protect from flooding. This is this is where technology isn't always bright new shiny things, but also using nature and the way our land has worked for us in the past. Emma, I just want to take a slightly different uh, tact in in this question because uh, I know from lots of things that you've uh, said publicly, that you're a huge supporter of women in the energy and green sector. And and I applaud that. Uh, I wonder why we are unrepresented in in this sector and what you think we could do about it to, to, to rebalance. Such a big question and such an important question. And we could probably do an entire (laughs) podcast just on that. Uh, So many, many different ways of acting on making sure that women are properly represented in the climate debate. I think one of the things we can all do, both men and women, and it does mean working with men too, is really give profile and amplify the voices of women. Research that I have uh, looked at, uh, Marianne Seagart has written about it in a brilliant book called The Authority Gap. The Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation have done research too. Their, Their research points to for every woman that makes it into the media they're drowned out by six male voices Marianne Seacart has looked at a whole range of different data but something that really struck me was some research that she wrote about a few years ago on the back of an election where despite brilliant female political commentators not one of them made it into the top 10 Twitter influencers. Mm. And we're talking about Laura Koonsberg. Uh, I mean, it's a, an, en- an endless list of brilliant female political commentators. Uh, Beth Rigby, Allegra Stratton, Gillian Tett. Then when she looked or the researchers looked at the the MP, the female MPs who were going, this is outrageous. What about all of these brilliant political commentators? It was discovered that very few of them were amplifying their voices. So there's, there's a raft of different measures we all need to take to amplify female voices. I'm also really, was really struck by something I witnessed at COP26, where Mary Robinson, and I'm part of a a group that she convenes with Halla Thomas-Dottir and Christiana Fergueres, called the Fearless Women. She asked us to congregate at a certain time. She was an ongoing commentator for the Sky Climate Channel at COP26, and she gifted her platform 
to a young female representative of indigenous communities, Helena from the Amazon. And she did that live on Sky Climate Channel. And the interview was absolutely extraordinary. I think Sky gave even more time to this interview. Mary, as an elder, stood next to Helena. And and it's something that since I witnessed that, I've seek to replicate in some of the events that I've spoken at and really keen, really so delighted to see Tilly here today to make sure that we've got the next generation represented, asking questions, holding us to account as leaders and setting the tone often of the conversations that we need to have and the action that we need to take. I think that's such a great story, Emma, and so powerful and gives me goosebumps, really, when I, I sort of listen to it, because it, it seems like such a simple action, and yet the consequences and the ripple effect of it, you know, resonate. Uh, and I think we can all take something from that. I can certainly take something from that. So thank you for sharing that story. Tilly, as always, we like to uh, end uh, on one of your questions. So would you like to take us to your question? I feel like Emma actually just kind of covered what I was (laughs) going to ask, which is exactly that, the representation of obviously women is a massive one, but also of um, the intergenerational piece. And it's something that I was kind of thinking off the back of COP26 as well was for, for various reasons. I feel like there were lots of voices that unfortunately couldn't be represented because of travel issues. I mean, even things like UK teenagers who weren't able to travel to COP26 because they're they're too young or they don't have an income to pay for themselves to travel. And so it's not just people having to cross from other nations across the world. But I mean, you you covered you covered a lot of it just then quite quite eloquently. But um, the, particularly in relation to COP twenty six, actually, I'm interested to hear your perspective on the representation of different voices. So important. And if I can tell two quick stories, one was at an event again halfway through COP twenty six. I wasn't due to speak at that event. It was a film being showed or or by Sky about um, women at the forefront of the climate agenda. Immediately after this incredibly powerful film, the presenter was a woman. She wasn't able to attend the film premiere. There was a panel discussion and it was three men, chaired by Gonzalo, one of the UN champions, And as he stood up on the platform, he realised that he was on an all-male panel and very quickly uh, talked about his discomfort. He'd made a a promise that he would not be on an all-male panel. And, And I was sitting in the audience thinking something has to happen here. And he called out. Uh, after asking the other panellists their first question. You know, there, there, there must be somebody who's prepared to join me. So I shot up onto the, the platform and asked if there was another woman that would join me. And indeed, the, the micro- Gonzalo ended up handing the microphone to uh, another woman who was there. But even... I felt it was important to do, but one of the things I talked about as I went up onto the panel was I wanted to channel a colleague, um, Sheila Patel, 
who was one of the ambassadors alongside me and others to the races to zero and the race to resilience. She and I and others were very much focused on the race to resilience. Uh, she's also a leader of Slum Dwellers International and felt it was more, you know, had more relevance to what we had just seen as a film. So I felt it was important to be there on the platform to represent women, but I also wanted to make sure I delivered on a promise I made to Sheila that I would channel her into my interventions as someone uh, working on the forefront of the climate agenda in India and elsewhere. And then this event I spoke at shortly after COP at Canada House, I went to a sixth form college, the United World College on Vancouver Island, and they asked us to, various of us who were in London, to hold an event, speak at an event around COP26. And they put us all in age order, probably out of respect. But having just seen Mary do her intervention with Helena, and knowing that there was a recent graduate from this college, uh, a young woman from Germany called Lola, who'd spent her two weeks at COP as a translator, I asked Lola in advance whether she would get liked to speak first. She took up that challenge. I, again, at this event, gifted her my slot. I spoke late, later because I wanted to make a point, particularly as this was linked to a young person's college, that we need to hear young voices too and not tucked at the end of a conversation. So uh, she really set the tone for a very, very different conversation that if we'd gone in age order would have probably sounded like she was tacking on her comments at the end. So again, we need, all need to think about how we bring the voices of um, the missing voices into our conversations and there are different ways of doing it. And I've shared a couple of examples, but I really hope that by sharing these examples, other people think about what they can do. Well, Emma, on that note, thank you so much for sharing your insights, uh, wisdom, experiences and stories with us. They've been so hugely powerful and insightful. And I know our audience will really treasure listening to this podcast as we have done. Thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure joining you both. Thank you, Josephine. Thank you, Tilly. Thank you.